you have an outline in your uh, bulletin there, so we're not going to tell you right now, we're not going to make it through the outline this morning because uh, just uh, we're going to spend a little bit of time introducing this next portion of Scripture, and so uh, we want to take our time as we go through this, such an important part of God's Word. I want to speak to you this morning about, and probably for the next several weeks, the miracle of righteousness. The miracle of righteousness. Uh, Man's right standing before God. And we're going to be looking at verses 20 through 31 of Romans chapter 3. And there's probably no other portion of Scripture that most of us are familiar with or recognized with. Maybe when we came to Christ, someone shared these verses to us. Uh, and, and with us, and we were gloriously converted by God's grace. Uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful portion of Scripture. But, you know, we kind of had to go through the trenches to get here. Um, it wasn't easy. Uh, for the last several weeks, probably months, we've been spending some time here in Romans, and we've heard the same message every week. The message was Sin. Sin. You're a sinner. You're a sinner. There's no righteousness in you. You have no righteousness of your own. We heard that message over and over and over again. That all sinners deserve God's judgment. And I'm sure that some of you probably thought, man, does this guy speak on anything else? You know, I mean, what's going to get on with this? But we took it verse by verse. We took it word by word and we went through it. And that's what Paul's message is to the Roman church. He wanted them to understand that they're basically like everybody else. They're sinners. He, he, he talked about Gentiles. He talked about Jews. He said there's nobody righteous before God, including even Christians. That we don't have some kind of a special, um, you know, carved out uh, a place in our own righteousness, our own righteousness before God. God didn't choose us as believers because we had some righteousness of our own. And so he includes us with all the rest. And he says, just because you're a believer, don't think that you're, you got some inherent goodness in you that caused you to get to this state in life. And he says, no, that's not the case. And he says it over and over and over again. Verse 9, chapter 3, what then, are Jews any better off? Are we any better off? I believe that the word Jews there is in, in put in there. It's not in the original text. And I think there, that's where he's including believers. He says, are we any better off than the Jews and the Gentiles? Not at all. We've all been charged, both Jews and Greeks. Everybody is under sin. There's none righteous, no, not one. And we've heard that message. Those three letters, sin, 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 sin. Well, today we begin a new section. Today, Paul kind of turns on his toes and he begins to offer a glimmer of hope for those who have been held to the bondage of sin, who are convicted by their sin. And you have a little graph there, and I just want to share this with you that, you know, we've been in this kind of section one of Romans from verse 18 of chapter one all the way to verse 20 of chapter three. And the theme has been sin. In other words, somehow you need righteousness. God requires righteousness, and all you have to offer is sin. There's a need for a Savior. There's a need for salvation. Because all men are guilty before God. 
Well, the section we come to today, beginning in verse 20, 21, all the way, I would say, through chapter 8, it says there in the graph through 21, chapter 5, that's fine. But he begins to talk about salvation. He begins to talk about the glorious hope of salvation through Christ. That, you know what, you don't have any righteousness in and of yourself, none of us do, but that righteousness is provided for us and it can be received. So up to this point, he's talking about you need to be saved, you need to be saved. And now he's saying, I'm going to show you how. I'm going to give you the way to salvation. He would have made a good advertising agent, a good publicitist, because he he really, uh, he, he, he creates a desire in us to know, is there any hope for us? Up to this point, it seemed dark. It seemed like there was no hope. But Paul, in his words that we'll now read, he shows, no, there's a way. There's a way of salvation. There's hope for all men before God. And so I want to read from verse 20 down through verse 31, and then we're just going to make some kind of overall statements about the text and point out some things. And and like I said, we'll probably get through maybe that first part of the outline on the first page, and then we'll continue it next week. So follow along in your Bibles as I read Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 20. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now, these are the key words, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting, Paul asks? It is excluded By what kind of law? By a law of works? No. But by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. It's a wonderful section of Scripture. And it shows a way to salvation for us who are convicted. Notice he, he starts right there in, in chapter uh, verse 20. He says, you know, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified. 
Nobody. I don't care how good you are. You can never be good enough. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying there's no way. And he begins this kind of this, this study of salvation. And he goes all the way up even into chapter 8. Because it was such an important subject for him. I mean, he took time to lay down the foundation that we're all sinners. And we have no hope in and of ourselves. But now he begins to show us the glorious way of salvation. And he says, by the deeds of the law, there shall be no flesh justified in his sight. That's why in verse 21 of our text, he says, but now. But now. See, after the statement about the law, he, he, the law just reveals our sin. That's all it does. It gives us the knowledge that we've, we've broken God's commands. And he says the righteousness of God apart from the law is manifest or made known. And so when you stop and you think of what Paul is, is telling us here, he's really sharing with us in a continued theme, but now with hope. That, yeah, there's no hope for you in and of yourself. You can never be good enough to get to heaven on your own. Because there's no way that can happen because righteousness doesn't come by keeping a bunch of religious do's and don'ts. See, we have to change our mentality as Christians. Somehow we think that when we drag ourselves in here Sunday and sit here and warm a seat and listen to and sing and listen to some music and, and then you know uh, hear somebody get up and teach the word of God and, and maybe say a prayer here or there and then we leave, somehow we think that... God is looking down saying, oh, good, good. Now I have to reward you because you've done something good today. That's how we think. But that's not how God operates. God says even our our, our good works done with the wrong motive are like filthy rags. They're things to be discarded. And I think sometimes, beloved, we really need to check our Mentality. We need to check our motive. Why are we doing what we are doing? Are we doing it because we think maybe if we, we do a, a dance before God, he'll give us a bigger hug or something like that? That's silly. God doesn't work that way. And so he says here in verse 22, he says, The righteousness of God through faith in what? Jesus Christ for all who believe. It's so important that we understand that we cannot come to God. We cannot have a relationship with God by doing certain things. And he continues in his text here. And he says, everybody's in the same boat, verse 23, for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. And we're going to be going into these verses in depth in the coming weeks. I'm just reading them right now, giving you kind of the setting, a foundation for where we're going to be going. He says, everybody's fallen short. Nobody measures up. We've seen that. He says in verse 24, they're justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. There's not multiple roads that lead to heaven. There's not multiple religions that lead to heaven. Jesus said, I am the way, 
the truth, and the life. He didn't say, I'm one of many ways. No, he said, you know what? If you, if you want to come to God, if you want to restore your relationship with God, your fellowship that was broken by sin, if you want that to go away and you want to have a, a, a vital living relationship with the God who created you, there's only one way to go about that, and that's through my son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to come to the cross. And he says there that this was God's work. This is what he did. Look all the way down at verse 28. It says, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. This is what Paul was teaching. It was very important that he taught these people these things because what would happen with some Jewish folks, they would come to Christ and then certain people would say, okay, don't forget you're you're, you're still Jewish, you're still a Jew, so you still have to do all this other stuff or you're not saved. And Paul's saying, wait a minute. Yeah, they're still a Jew, but all the other stuff, they don't have to do that. They're saved by grace. You're not saved by keeping the law. And he wanted them to be clear on that. And that's why he says there in verse 29, is God the the, the God of Jews only? In other words, who had the law? The Jewish people did. The Gentiles didn't have it. It didn't mean anything to them. So if you could get saved only through keeping the law, guess what? A lot of people aren't going to get saved because they didn't have the law. And so Paul's saying, no, that's not the way it was. Verse 31 Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? What's he saying? He's asking the question, you know what? If if we're not saved by the law, then what good is it? Do we just throw it out? Do we just discard it? See, the law has an effect of showing us our sin. That's why we have the law. That's why God gave us the law. He didn't give us the law to save us. He gave us the law to point out our need to be saved. If you didn't have 35 mile an hour speed limit signs down Jefferson, you'd probably have a lot of accidents. You'd probably have a lot of people hurt. You'd probably have people just flying up and down that street. Because why? There wouldn't be any rule. There wouldn't be any standard. You could, you know, unlimited, do whatever you want. But when a sign is posted there, it shows you this is the standard for your behavior. And trust me, if you break that standard, guess what? You'll see sire or hear sirens and little red lights following you. And they'll pull you over and they'll give you a hefty ticket. They couldn't do that if there was no law. They couldn't just pull you over and say, well, you, you, know, you were going 45. And you could say, well, pff, who cares? There's no speed limit sign. And so it's important that we understand that God gave us the law to show us our need for salvation. And so when you stop and think of your salvation, you think of redemption, you think of salvation, you think of words like justification and righteousness. And we're going to go into all these in detail. But all that is apart from the law. It's given to us, verse 24, as what? A free gift, he says. You don't have to work for it. It's, it's given to us by the grace of of God through Jesus Christ. And so he asked the question, well, if that's the case, do you just throw the law out? I've heard a lot of Christians tell me over the years, well, brother, we're, we're under grace. We're not under the law. Have you heard that? People say that all the time. 
And they use it almost as a license to do whatever they want. What Paul is saying here is, hey, don't get too far ahead of yourself. You don't just throw the law out because you became a Christian and you're under God's grace. The law still has a purpose. It doesn't make it void. Jesus didn't say, I came to get rid of the law. No, he came to what? Fulfill it. So if we can't be saved by keeping the law in our flesh, does that mean we're not under any obligation at all to pay attention to it? And Paul answers that question. Question, he says, God forbid in some translations. We literally established the law. I want you to understand as a believer, as one who's put their faith, their trust in Christ, when you got saved, when you became redeemed, there's no separation between grace and law. That's not what the Bible teaches. And that's the problem that we have in the churches today. A lot of people think that. They want to elevate grace so much that they, they say, well, you know, there's no responsibility for you to do anything now. You can just sit back in the armchairs of grace and do whatever you want because, hey, you're saved by grace. You're not saved by works. We're not under the law. We're under grace. But see, grace and God's offer of salvation through grace does not make null and void the law. It establishes it. It proves it to be true. And so Paul basically is saying, to sum up this whole text real quick, he's saying, you know what? You can't save yourself by your own good works. But just because that's true, don't, don't throw the word of God, don't throw the law of God out and never think that he holds you to some standard. He's saying when you come to Christ and you're justified before God as a believer, you're given the Holy Spirit of God. And he begins to produce those good works in you as only he can, because that's how they're produced. We don't produce them. He produces them in us, the word of God says. And when he does that, that will establish or fulfill the law, just like it did in the life of Christ. See, because when you separate grace from the law, what happens? You start down a a dangerous road, my friend. Basically, you begin to say, well, you begin to say things like, you know, you'll meet somebody who is professing to be a believer. Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian. Really? Okay. And you look at their life and they're going, wow, something's wrong here. Let's see, they're, you know, they're cheating on their, their husband, their wife, whatever it might be. They're, 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 they're doing this, they're doing that, they're abusing their body in some way. You know, that, that doesn't add up. Something doesn't add up here. And so maybe you go to them and you say, hey, you know, brother, I just am curious. You know, you, you're a believer, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. All right, well, I have some concerns. Um, oh, no, 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 I, 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 I got saved. <laughs> I did it. When was that? Well, you know, I was junior high school and went to camp and, you know, everybody went forward and I went forward and, you know, said a prayer. And, and yeah, that's when I got saved. And you want to say, what has God done for you lately? Because you look at the person's life and the answer is nothing. 
But they're saying, oh, no, I believe. I believe. What does that mean to God? That doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean a thing. And what happens is we try to elevate grace to such a degree that we forget that God still has a standard. Just because we're saved by grace doesn't mean that we have the the freedom to do whatever we want, whenever we want. And we've all known people who have professed Christ and then don't live the life that's representing of his calling upon their life. We've all known people like that. And you may ask them, well, are you a Christian? Yes, I, 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 I asked Jesus into my life. I mean, you have to shake your head and say, well, what does that mean? It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything. Just because someone professes Christ doesn't mean they're saved. We have to change our thinking on this because the gospel has been diluted to the point where, you know, it's just kind of a free-for-all. And it's really taken over a lot of the teaching in the seminaries and things like that. One writer said this, believers who who become agnostics, believers who become agnostics are still saved. (laughs) They're still born again. You can even accept Christ and become an atheist. But if you once accepted Christ as Savior, you cannot lose your salvation even though you deny God. What kind of wacky teaching is that? It comes out of the whole idea, well, once saved, always saved. Have you heard that? I've used that term sometimes. That's not a a, a good theological... I know what we... We think we mean by when we say that, once saved, always saved. But that's not a real accurate theological statement. A a more correct statement would be, the saint is going to persevere. The perseverance of the saints. Because that's what scripture says. You know, just because you, you raise your hand in a meeting or go down and get, go down an aisle and get baptized and join a church... And then you go do whatever you want. Oh, no, no, I did the religious thing. I got saved. That that means nothing. Absolutely nothing. The Bible says in 2 Timothy 2.12, if you deny me, I will deny you. That's the word of God. One other author says this, that mindset of kind of free grace, any teaching that demands a change of conduct, either toward God or man for salvation, is adding works and human effort to faith and is an accursed message. In other words, who are you to say that, okay, well, you know, salvation involves more than just saying, oh, Jesus is Lord. That doesn't save somebody. That may be the fruit of someone who's saved, but just mouthing those words, what does the scripture say? The scripture says that even, what, the demons believe, right? They believe, and they shudder because they know what's going to happen to them, but they believe. So we have to be careful when we talk about our faith, when we talk about salvation, And define some very important terms. And that's what we're going to be doing in the the coming weeks. Do you think it's possible to be saved and have no 
manifestation of that salvation at all. Is that even possible? All you have to do is go through the Gospels. Go through the Gospels, God's Word, and look at people who were saved. And look at what happened to them. Two of one, every one of them was radically changed. Radically changed. Left jobs, homes, families, everything to follow Christ. That's a radical change, my friends. And when that change wasn't exhibited, what did Jesus say? Hey, if you're not going to live up to the standard, don't follow me. Right? He didn't mince words. He didn't throw the, the, the gates of heaven open so wide that, boy, just everybody's going to get in. doesn't matter what you think of God or Christ or anything. Just say you believe and you're good to go. Salvation means this, beloved, that the life of God has been planted in our soul. The life of God has been planted in our soul. And you know what? There's got to be some kind of revelation. There's got to be some kind of a manifestation of that life if it's there. Because before it's there, the Bible says that we're what? We're dead. We have no life. We lived a life of evil. And wherever you look... Throughout the scriptures, I mean, you take Thomas in in John uh, 20, verse 28, when he looked at Jesus and he said, what? My Lord and what? My God. See, we have to understand that to come to Jesus as Savior is not separate from acknowledging his lordship in our lives. You can't have one without the other. I went to a Bible college, unfortunately, that taught just that. And we had a man come from Dallas uh, Seminary, and he taught a whole thing on, on how there's a difference between being a believer in Jesus and being a disciple of Jesus. So for many years, I thought, okay, yeah, you can come to Christ and not have any fruit and not really believe anything about anything and still be saved, Until one day, you know, you become maybe a fully committed disciple. Jesus never taught that kind of thing. He said, if you're going to follow me, what do you have to do? Deny yourself. Die to yourself. Take up your cross, an instrument of death, and do it daily. Then you can follow me. And you see time after time throughout the Gospels when, when, when Jesus taught something hard and, and the next verse it says a lot of people didn't follow him anymore after that. <laughs> they couldn't handle it. We have to be careful how we present the Gospel. How we talk about salvation. In Romans chapter 10 just over a couple pages, verses 9 and 10. We know what these, these verses say, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord? Is it just saying, oh, Jesus is Lord? 
Over the years, I remember in youth ministry, even we, we had some, some youth workers at times that, you know, I'd hear them counseling a young person at a conference or something. And they would say just that. The kid would be like, well, you know, I don't understand this. You know, just say Jesus is Lord. <laughs> just say it. And they'd go, Jesus is Lord. Welcome to the family. It's like, whoa, wait a minute. I think we passed a couple steps here. You know, this is no different than when, if you hear, uh, if you ever have the, uh, uh, I'm going to say pleasure, but it's not usually pleasurable, to hear Joel Olstein preach on TV. At the end of his little message, he shares what he calls the gospel, and he says something similar to that. If you believe that Jesus died, and if you believe, you know, he's risen from the dead, just, you know, pray this prayer with me. Welcome to the family. What? Wait a minute. See, we have to be careful of the terms we use and what they mean. What is salvation? Salvation is basically the affirmation of a sovereign God coming into my life through the mediation of Jesus Christ. That's what salvation is. And if God is in my life, there should be a little shake up. There should be something different about me. That's not adding works to your salvation. It's just recognizing who he is. In Acts chapter 2 verse 36, the first sermon that was preached by Peter when the church was born... After the Holy Spirit had descended upon him, he says this in verse 36, Acts 2. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for sure that God has made this same Jesus, whom you have crucified, both Lord and what? Christ. You can't separate Jesus as being Savior and Lord. The other thing that we hear a lot of times when we share the gospel with someone, we get to the, you know, what they used to call the close. You know, you've shared certain questions for them. You feel some conviction and there's a way to close the deal, you know, because after all, it's us that closed the deal, right? I mean, it's just so crazy the way these people think sometimes. You know, it's God that does the work. We're just there as an errand boy. We're just doing what God uh, allows us to do. But you get to the end and you hear some people say, well, you know, just, just... Just tell God that you want to you want to uh, make Jesus Lord. You ever heard that? I don't know. The last time I read my Bible, Jesus is Lord. He's already Lord. We don't make him anything. I mean, are you following me? Do you understand? But words have meaning, and when we say things like that, yeah, just give your life to Christ and make Him Lord. No, you're not making Him Lord. You're acknowledging His lordship in your life. In Psalm 110, verse 1, he uses the word for Lord Adonai. It means sovereign ruler. I mean, when someone's sovereign and he's a ruler, you know, you don't have to say, well, what does that mean? 1 Corinthians, chapter 12, verse 3, it uses the same kind of context. It says, no man speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed. No man can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Well, what does he mean by that? Does he mean that you can't say those words? I've heard people curse God and then say, oh, Jesus is Lord. Yeah, right. Oh, wait, they said it. They're saved. No, they're not saved. There's no, there's no meaning behind those words to them. It's only by the Holy Spirit, by the work of the Spirit, 
that one is saved. It's not through human agency. Now, we should do our part. We're called to go to the uttermost parts of the world and share the gospel, as even Bob and Nobi Kennel shared with us, our missionaries to Papua New Guinea, last week. By the way, they arrived there, and they're safe, and they're starting to, to finish up this, uh, checking their translation. In a couple of weeks, they'll be off to Thailand, so they ask for your continued prayers. But we're called to go to the uttermost parts of, of the world. Why? Because that's the medium which God created for us to give the word of God to people, to give them the gospel. How are they going to hear without a what? Without a preacher, right? I mean, how are they going to hear? It's up to us to take the message of the gospel to those who are lost. But I want to be clear, nobody can be saved unless the Holy Spirit is doing his work. Nobody can have proper insight into who Jesus Christ is unless they're aided by the Holy Spirit. Because the natural man doesn't get the things of the Spirit. That's what the Bible says. No one truly understands Jesus and his lordship unless it comes by the Spirit of God. That's why when we're sharing with an unbeliever... You know, we don't have to lead them down a little path. You know, well, God has a happy plan for your life. And then, oh, yeah, there's this thing, sin. And then, you know, do you believe all that? Okay, good. We go to the next step. No. I mean, that may be a way that you can use it. That's fine. But don't stick so hard and fast to it. You know what? Be sensitive enough to realize, you know what? This this person's checked out. They don't want to hear this. They don't want to hear me present the gospel to them right now. And you know what? You walk away and you're okay with it. Why? Because God didn't open up a door for you to share the gospel. See, the problem is, is we're so insensitive to the Spirit at times, we're out there shoving the gospel down people's throats when they don't want to hear it. Because we don't know, we're not sensitive, is God opening this door or not? Remember the first time Dan and and some of the folks went out from Grace, a little evangelism uh, outing, and the first thing they did was pray. Pray that God would lead us to somebody who desires the gospel. And a lot of times God answered that prayer. Because that's how it has to be done. It's not a work of the flesh. And so if it's not a work of the flesh, it's a work of the spirit. Romans 1.5 says we've all, we've received grace and apostleship. And then he says, why did we receive that grace? In verse 5 of Romans 1, he says, for obedience to the faith among the nations. So you get saved in order to be obedient to God. That's why you get saved. I mean, we kind of think of salvation as just, well, we're just going to be in heaven one day and that's it. No. God saves us for a purpose. He saves us so that we can be obedient to the faith of our calling. There's no such thing as faith without obedience. But when you say that, people confused and they say, well, wait, isn't that works by salvation by works? No, it's not. There's, there's no... Uh, turn over to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. And like I said, this is just kind of laying a foundation for this whole subject matter of salvation because I think we need to do it because the gospel has been so devastated and wrongly taught over the years. When we hear what it really is, sometimes we go, whoa, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> and it's, it's hard for it to set in. Look at Titus chapter 2, verse 11. 
Titus chapter 2, verse 11. He writes here, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. All right? Makes pretty simple sense. Salvation comes, and it comes by the grace of God. What does it do? The next part of that verse, in verse 12, it says, training, right, or teaching. The grace of God has appeared to bring salvation, but it also trains us. It teaches us. What does it teach us? Well, he continues, to renounce ungodliness, to renounce worldly possession, passions, to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. See, he, he puts something to our salvation. He doesn't just say, well, the grace of God has appeared to all men and you're saved, that's it. No, he says the grace of God has appeared and if it's appeared to you personally and it saved you, guess what it's going to do? It's going to train you, it's going to teach you to renounce ungodliness, to renounce worldly passions, to live self-controlled, spirit-controlled life. See, there's no such thing as regeneration or salvation apart from sanctification. That's a fallacy. And yet, in our elevation of grace so many times, we all know people that have so-called come to Christ and, boy, they're just living for the devil every day. And we just say, well, you know, one day maybe they'll, they'll, they'll get their life straightened out. Because they profess Christ. They're, they're a Christian. They don't live anything like a Christian, but they're a Christian. They made that commitment. No, no, that's, that's not true. Regeneration is never apart from sanctification. What's sanctification? Sanctification is a process whereby through the word of God and through the spirit of God and even the body of Christ, God does a work of making you more like Christ each and every day. He does that work. We don't do it. We don't have the ability to do it. That's what gets us in trouble. So we have someone that comes to Christ, so-called. What's the first thing we do? We begin to teach them all the, the Christian stuff. You know, so they come to church and maybe they got a cigarette hanging out of their mouth. Well, brother, you know, in church we don't do that kind of thing. It's probably not good that you smoke in church. But that's who they are because they haven't changed. But maybe they made a so-called commitment to Christ. So now we've got to change their behavior to kind of somewhat line up with what they're saying. So it's not an embarrassment to everybody. Rather than just calling a spade a spade and just saying, hey, you know what? Maybe this person hasn't been regenerated. Maybe this person, you know, and it's not, you know, it said smoking. I don't know why, but it could be lustful thoughts. It could be whatever, Right? I mean, it's just important that we understand that when God saves somebody, there's transformation that takes place. One writer, James Stewart, said this, Men in movements have often given the impression that the acceptance of the lordship of Christ is a second experience of grace and a sort of optional addendum to the Christian life. In other words, you can be saved and not have Jesus be Lord of your life. Then he says this, So great has been this perversion that many congregations are astounded when they hear the true gospel of the Lordship of Christ, and they believe we are preaching a new 
gospel. It's not a new gospel. It's the same gospel that Christ preached. John Calvin said this, Christ justifies no one that he does not at the same time sanctify. Whom he justifies, he sanctifies. He makes more like Christ. That means when you're redeemed, there will be a result subsequently of some form of a holiness in your life, a pattern of life that's changed. Now, it's not going to be perfect. You know, we don't believe in sinless perfection. We don't believe you become a Christian and then, oh, you you never sin again. We all sin in a myriad of, of ways each day if we're honest with ourselves and with the Lord. And so, you know, that's not what we're saying. But what we're saying is something clicks, something changes. For the first time in your life, maybe if you fully committed to Christ, you realize, wow, what you're doing is not something that Christ would appreciate you doing. And you feel that conviction of the Spirit inside and that desire to change. And maybe that change takes a while. That's okay. You know, that, that, that's the process of sanctification. We're becoming more like Christ. You know, we're, we don't get saved and immediately we're like Christ in all of our behavior, our thoughts and actions, and we're just perfect. That's not the way God laid it out to be. He said, no, this is a process. You're living in a, in a sinful world. You're living in a, in a sinful body, the flesh. And you're going to be pulled in a myriad of ways. But for the first time, if you have trusted in Christ and you have the Spirit of God, the life of God inside you, for the first time you can do what is right in God's eyes. Spurgeon said this, salvation would be sadly incomplete, a sadly incomplete affair if it didn't deal with our ruined estate. We want to be purified as well as pardoned. And justified, and justification without sanctification would not be salvation at all. God saves us by grace, through faith, not human effort. But part of God's gracious work, beloved, in our lives is to bring us to repentance. To change a heart, change of mind. To bring us to the point where we're willing to confess our sins before God. Say the same thing that God says about them. And part of that gracious work is also bringing us in submission to the Lordship of Christ. This doesn't happen easily. It doesn't happen naturally. And after you're a believer, you're constantly fighting against it. Each and every day. Justification is initiating the sanctifying process. That's what happens. And God begins to change us. Now, when you stop and you think of the whole idea of that gospel, what that means, you know, on your outline there, I put there, but now things are different. Well, what specifically has changed? If you're sitting here this morning, you're saying, yes, I've trusted Christ, and and I know he's my Savior, he's my Lord, you should be able to look at your life and say, this has changed. You know, one of the things that's changed is that we have been transformed, translated from wrath to righteousness. We were under the The condemnation of God. We were under the wrath of God. Well, when we come to Christ and we take his righteousness on us, all of a sudden that wrath goes away. 
We're no longer judged by God. You know, sometimes you hear people who are in the hospital or maybe they're having a hard time and they're Christians, they're born-again Christians, and I hear another brother or sister say, well, you know, God must just be punishing them somehow. (laughs) I'm like, really? You really think that your heavenly Father punishes you? You have a warped sense of your salvation if you think the God that gave his own son for you and paid for all your sins, now when you step out of line, somehow punishes you. And I'm using the word punish because that's what I've heard. That's that's not biblical. If you're in Christ, your sins are forgiven. Right? You're a new creature in Christ. When you step out of line, what does God do? He disciplines us, the Bible says. He doesn't punish us. See, there's a big difference there. He disciplines us. He he strives to bring us back lovingly to the right path. To remind us that, look, these these sins have been forgiven. What are you doing? Why, Why do you continue down this road? You know, he lovingly brings somebody along your, in your life or something, somehow, maybe your sin is found out and lovingly you're, you're, you're kind of reminded, well, hey, I shouldn't be doing that. Maybe you're embarrassed back into the way. But whatever he does, he does it in love. We're not under his wrath. And then the second thing there is condemnation. We've all been condemned before God. That's what we've been studying the last several weeks. None of us are righteous. No, not one. Well, what changes when we come to Christ? What changes when we trust in the the work of Christ on the cross? Well, we're we're not under the condemnation of God anymore. Now, all of a sudden, we are justified. We are made right with God. How is that so? Because we know we have no goodness in and of ourselves to do that. We can't give enough money to the church or win enough people to Christ or feed the, the poor and the homeless or care for the needy. All those things are works. We're not saved by that. So how do we get this justification? How do we become justified before God? Well, Christ did that work on the cross. When he, he died on the cross, beloved, he died for you. He died for me. And he did so personally. It was a personal death. You know, so many times we think, well, yeah, Jesus died for, for the sins of all the world. Well, if you believe that, then you have to believe that everybody's going to heaven. Because if Jesus died for the sins of the world, he paid for everybody's sins. And we serve a just God. God could never send someone to hell whose debt has been paid. And we know the scripture says not everybody's going to heaven. That some people will be in hell. So we have to remind ourselves we are only justified through the work of Christ. We're only made right through the work of Christ. And then you see the third thing there from bondage to freedom. Before you come to Christ, you know what? You're a bond, you're a bond servant to your own sin. You're a slave to sin. Well, you know, I'm not that bad. It doesn't matter. You know, the scale isn't comparing you to your neighbor. The scale is comparing you, a sinner, to a holy God. It doesn't matter if it's just one little white lie that's still sin and it has no part in God's program. We have to be totally, totally justified. Well, if we're in bondage to sin, how can that happen? The only way it can happen is when Christ steps into our life and makes us free. 
He truly makes us free. He sheds the chains of sin and bondage. And that's why we can say we're, we can proclaim that we're free in Christ. So many people have the wrong idea. Well, if I, if I accept this Jesus thing, then I got a bunch of, you know, a handbook of a bunch of do's and don'ts. And it's just religion. It's going to restrict me. No, it's not. It, it, it opens up the doors of freedom in your life. For the first time, you can do what God desires you to do. And you can reap the benefits and the blessings of God. And the fourth thing there, not just are you changed from state of wrath to righteousness, condemnation to justification, bondage to freedom. But look at the last thing, exclusion to participation. We don't like to hear this, but non-believers will have no part in heaven. They'll have no part. They'll have no part in the glory of God. They'll have no part in forgiveness. They'll have no part or taste of the grace of God dealing with salvation. They're under his general grace. It, it reigns on the, the righteous as well as on the unrighteous. But when it comes to the grace of salvation, they're excluded. Sometimes we forget that. Sometimes we forget that once we were excluded from God's program... And what a glorious thing to be able to be a participant in the church, in the bride of Christ. Where God doesn't just, you know, okay, I'm going to save you and you're out of here. Pop, you go to heaven. I mean, that might be good for us, right? But that's not God's plan. No, he leaves us here. Why does he leave us here? Have you ever wondered about that? I mean, do you think he leaves us here because he needs us? No. He does the saving work. I mean, he, he can save. So he, he doesn't need us in that way. He leaves us here. So we go through that sanctifying process, but also so we're a picture of God's grace to a lost and dying world. That's why. He leaves us here so that we can take this glorious gospel and go out to the uttermost parts of the world, the highways and the byways, the neighbors and the grocery stores and the gas stations, and, and at least see if people are interested in hearing the gospel of Christ. And we become a participant in God's whole program of salvation. I mean, what a, what a wonderful thing. You know, nobody, nobody likes a showboat. Nobody likes the, the guy on the team that takes all the shots and doesn't pass the ball. Nobody likes the, the, you know, the, the guy that's you know, the, the, the big, big athlete on the team, and it's all about him. Even in the NFL, I mean, you have some players like that, and they're not looked upon as regarded as, as professional. You know, God is not that way. God says, no, I'm going to include you in this process. I'm going to save you by, by my grace. You're going to get saved. And then I'm going to give you gifts and the abilities to take this message that you heard that transformed your life out to a lost and dying world so that others could be saved. What a glorious thing. So that you can see these people become new creatures in Christ. That's what salvation is all about. Ask yourself, look at your own. The Bible says very clearly that we should look at our own lives spiritually and that we should examine them in relationship to what the word of God says and say, you know what, are we in the faith? Are we sure we're in the faith? 
We all need to do that. I don't care how long you've been, quote, saved. We need to go back and we need to remind ourselves that, you know what? We need to continue to persevere in this. It's not going to be easy. And I think as the days come and we see things coming on the horizon, beloved, that, that frankly are just in a, in a lot of ways scary. I mean, when you, you have certain people in certain parts of the world saying, yeah, we're going to basically behead you if you're, you're not part of our system. And they're making their way not only in those parts of the world, but even in our own country. And you begin to think, wow, what, what's happening? I mean, things are not going to get easier. Now is the time that you need to get on your knees before God and say, okay, is this religious thing with me, is this real? Is, is Christ truly mine? Is, is I, is, have I seen him truly transform my life? Or am I dealing with the same things I've been dealing with for 50 years? And I see no change at all. That's, that's only a question that you and God can answer. But I pray that you'll be honest with yourself and honest with the Lord. Go through the scriptures and you can see anyone who's come to Christ, who's given their life to Jesus, was transformed. They were changed. There was a difference in their life. And not only a difference in their life, but then they began to make a difference in the lives of the people around them. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, I know that we just kind of touched the edge of this iceberg that we're, that we're going to be getting to get into here in the coming weeks. But Lord, it's so important to have a proper foundation of our salvation. That we should understand that, you know what, it's not about coming to church. It's not about saying a prayer. It's not about being baptized. All those things are good things. What it's about is, is what are we doing with you and your son, the Lord Jesus Christ? Have we committed our hearts, our minds to him? Have we submitted to him in every area of our life? You, you, you can't do this thing 50-50. We can't come to Christ incrementally. Either you give it all up or you don't give any of it up. Either your destination is heaven or it's hell. Either you're under the grace of God or you're under the, the judgment and wrath of God. There's no gray area. And Lord, I pray that you would speak this message deep into our heart and that we would examine our own hearts before you. That we would desire to persevere in our faith that we would desire to, to use the gifts and the abilities that you've given to us, not to put more money in our bank account. Lord, all this is going to go bye-bye rather quickly. But Lord, that we would use our gifts and our abilities and our talents to serve you, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. For it's only by your grace we're saved. We thank you and we praise you. If there's any here this morning who has yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, has yet to come to a proper understanding of who Christ is, Lord, I pray that you would do that work of grace in their heart, that you would give them an uh, unyielding desire to come to you. As only you can. Lord, that you would be willing to cause them to, to bow their knee, to confess with their mouth. That Christ Jesus is Lord, King of Kings. And by doing so, that they would be gloriously saved. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.